Hello and welcome to episode 59, part 1 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines of the week in place of lets and headlines in the true context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject is Smart Motorways. This is in the Express. Highways England to extend smart motorways, removing hard shoulder despite safety fears. Highways England has outlined plans to strip the hard shoulder from nearly 400 miles of road, increasing the stretch of smart motorways from 416 to 788 miles by April 2025. Under the proposals, the new digital roads will replace the emergency stopping lane with the permanent fourth driving lane under the government's road strategy. The measures are aimed at decreasing congestion on the UK's high-speed roads, but motoring groups are concerned this will compromise the safety of motorists. Well, of course it will. The AA is concerned drivers may be forced to stop in live lanes if their vehicle encounters a problem. Yeah, that's obvious. Last month, the breakdown service raised serious concerns about the safety of the new motorways after an 83-year-old died on the M1 where there was no hard shoulder. However, Highways England says the new digital roads are safer and insists the new lane will have variable speed limits. How can they be safer? It will also be fitted with digital overhead signs with the red X to indicate an accident is ahead. In addition, emergency laybys will be placed a mile apart. In 2017, on the current 416 miles of smart motorways, there were 16 crashes recorded involving stationary vehicles compared to 29 crashes on the hard shoulder on 1,800 miles of traditional motorway, according to data from the Department of Transport. On the busy smart motorway on the M25 in Kent, a safety assessment also found there had been a reduction of crashes by 29% since its introduction. Jim O'Sullivan, Highways England Chief Executive, told the Sunday Times you will not get a car or truck drift into the emergency refuge area, whereas they can and do drift into the hard shoulder. We are now well into smart motorway operation and the statistics we have are reliable. He added, they are telling us that the safety record on smart motorways is arguably better than what we see on conventional motorways. See, this is the backwards world we live in. As long as the statistic say it's reliable and safe, if it's reliable and safe, Instead of using common sense and seeing the obvious glaring problem of removing a hard shoulder and turning it into a driving lane. The digital road system currently operates between junctions on the M1, M4, M6, M25, M42, M60 and M62. Well, I've said many times during pay-per-view that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And this can rarely be encapsulated more perfectly than in the case of smart motorways. When something is introduced into society, and it's an insane idea, but it's not only introduced, it's done without any consultation of the people, and even in some cases made compulsory by law, then you know it's the elite's agenda. Because the agenda does not take no for an answer, and why else would something that ridiculous be pursued in that way, unless it was the agenda? <laughs> Choice means freedom, and freedom is the last thing the elite want for humanity smart motorways are motorways in smart cities without a hard shoulder so whereas up until now if you're driving and a car breaks down you can pull over into the hard shoulder and wait for breakdown repair to arrive with cars driving by you while you're in a separate lane specifically for broken down cars so everyone's safe but as ever with the elite's agenda something in society which makes perfect sense and actually benefits people has to be infiltrated to become the opposite if it's not created from scratch in the first place to be so and this is what smart motorways are they're an accident multiple accidents at that and deaths waiting to happen planned to happen more accurately and this of course will play into the depopulation agenda the reason for which 
I explain in episodes 10 and 11 and episode 4. One of the main motivations for smart motorways is they're designed to interact with 5G in vehicles. I talk about 5G in episodes 8, 20 and 22. This oncoming nightmare for human health and human existence to a large extent. Smart and other vehicles including driverless cars which I talk about in episode 34 are planned to incorporate 5G communication as part of the Internet of Things, which I've talked about in episode 50, and as part of the Smart Grid, which I've talked about in episode 10 and other episodes. Electric cars are all part of creating the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode 4 and 31, where countries are broken up into regions and access to and travel between regions is restricted and only authorised with permission from authority. Electric cars at this point anyway have a very limited range between charges and this means people can only go so far between charges and that suits the elite's agenda in terms of travel and movement reasons explained in episode 4 and 31. Uber. There's an article here in the Express about electric cars. Electric cars, an honest account of travelling in a battery-powered car long distance. Electric cars, to some They're the future of motoring, but to others, they're expensive and impractical vehicles. Whether you're a skeptic or a fan of electric cars, their prominence is set to increase over the next few years. Express.co.uk took delivery of a Nissan Leaf, the most popular electric car in Europe, to test how suitable an electric car is and whether you should travel long distances in one. Ahead of the initial testing, which was to begin on Friday at 3.30pm, there were a few initial concerns. Firstly, it was Friday night traffic, plus the inevitable rush hour that we would face along the way. Secondly, the vehicle was delivered with 111 miles of range, not enough to make it 117 miles to the destination. However, a short charge would certainly solve that problem and the car could always be charging during the worst of rush hour to escape that mess. Shortly after setting off, we turned the car's heating system off and immediately gained back 10 miles of range, taking the total to 124 miles of range. The traffic was as bad as you'd expect, but the stop point was still in sight and the car would have enough range to get there with a little bit of range left over. However, after stopping for a five minute bathroom break, the range dipped from 57 miles to 42 miles, just like that. The car was fully switched off and I'd been away from it a matter of moments and I'd been robbed of those precious miles I had so diligently tried to conserve en route. Arriving at the fast charger recommended through the Nissan Leafs navigation system, located at Colchester Football Stadium, it was a welcome relief to see a completely empty charger. When stopped at the charger, the vehicle has 38 miles of range due to some redirections, higher motorway speed and use of the heater. It was sufficient but did not leave a lot of contingency as the nearest fast charges were over half that amount away. Unfortunately, we had not been signed up to this electric charger network and therefore did not have the relevant card to start charging. However, there was a mobile app to sign up for which would have sufficed. The app crashed twice with no real explanation why the application could not be approved. There was an emergency Hotline, which we called to then see if they could remotely override the charge so I could get the vehicle plugged in. It's three degrees outside, but after 15 minutes on the phone, we were trying to get the car connected and charged. It fails, so the system is rebooted. It fails again and is rebooted a second time. It is only after the latest attempt in about 20 minutes on the phone that the operator informed me that this charge point had not been working properly for months and was referred back to the manufacturer's Siemens to be fixed. The charging network not only passed the buck here but also wasted half an hour of time with reboots that they were aware would not work and then also offered no possible alternative. Why was it still being recommended to its customers? Why should they go out of their way to stop 
there just to be told it doesn't work and then go through the palaver of finding a suitable alternative. Why would they not just black market from the system? He informed me that the NCAR sat-nav does not update that quickly, which means that it probably does not have the correct information. This sadly didn't do it for me as a justification as they should either force car makers to update their systems or alternatively car makers need to be more involved in helping out their customers. There are now two options here. Gamble and drive to the next fast charger which was around 17 miles away with the limited range left in the car or head over to a local Asda and use the 7.2 kilowatt an hour slow charger to give me enough juice to get me there. It's 8.30pm and my original arrival time was 7.30pm. Not ideal. I have the correct card for this station but it does not work which feels completely typical at this point. Another 10 minute call later and I'm plugged in and charging, albeit slowly. After the hour which felt like an eternity staring at those blue lights flashing on the dashboard, another phone call is required to be able to disconnect the car and get moving again. The hour charge gives a paltry few miles of range but enough to get to the next charge point with a little contingency. It's worth having a contingency given how the range is affected so drastically by a number of factors and it's not like running out of fuel in a car. With an electric, when it's gone, it's gone. Can you imagine the implications of safety for that? The fast charger is polar again, but the card is not working again so another call is required. It was resolved relatively quickly but it's still around 3 degrees Celsius in 10 minutes is 10 minutes at that temperature standing outside reading codes and having to repeat them again. As the signal is bad, you could refill a petrol or diesel car a few times over in the time it took to just get the vehicle plugged in. It does however work and within 45 minutes the car is at about 90%. One more phone call and the car is disconnected and another 19 minutes on the road and it arrives at the destination. It's quarter past 11 at night which means it took almost 8 hours to go from central London to Halesworth. Thankfully the Belgrove Barn accommodation was the jewel at the centre of the mess of a trip. It's quirky decor, eerily peaceful silence and stunning backdrop makes it the perfect countryside getaway. The properties on the site are all five-star converted barns which range in size and are well equipped and there is even an electric charger on the ground. This Tesla 7 kilowatt an hour charger is perfect. If you have an electric car because you can use a car all day, plug it in overnight and have a full charge by the next morning. You are left to your own devices at the self-catering barns and they are set into a peaceful corner of the countryside, far enough away to not be disturbed by traffic but close enough to the town that you don't feel too far out of it. The next few days going around town and driving up to the seaside, the car was in its element and came alive. It's nippy and agile, comfortable and well equipped. The parking sensors and 3D camera view were great for getting into tight spots and the vehicle is in its element. The journey home was a little smoother as we signed up to Electric Highway which allows you to remove the mess of needing a special card, which does not always work to be able to charge. You download the app, sign up and scan a QR code. It charges you a premium per kilowatt it uses but after 45 minutes it stated that there was no charge to my account and the energy used was renewable from wind and solar which also feels great that whole charge in the next 100 miles driving in the car utilized completely free energy as an ev owner you're going to spend more time in service stations and waiting for your vehicle to charge this is neither good or bad it's just the way it will be going forward if you think of them as elongated brakes then they don't seem all that bad so let so let's break down the range a little bit 150 miles is purely idealistic. As soon as you put the radio on and put the heater on, you can lose between 5 to 15 miles of range, just like that. We found ourselves intermittently blasting the heater every 15 to 20 minutes to clear the condensation just to preserve those sacred miles of range, which were depleted as the miles and night pushed on. So your 120 mile car can soon become a 120 mile or lower if you total up all the aggravating factors. 
The leaf is a great card which perhaps lets itself down by its limited range. This range will not be a concern on short trips and if you live in a city or a small village then it's almost a no-brainer if you want an electric car. However, if you're regularly putting distance drivers into your car, it just doesn't make sense right now to pick that one. We need to remember to not entirely blame the vehicle but instead question the infrastructure. Why haven't people followed the Tesla model? How are these established brands with tens or hundreds of years of experience falling behind to a voracious tech startup? For example, take the Jaguar I-Pace. It is compatible with 100 kilowatt fast chargers, but there are none currently in the UK. Why are EV early adopters still guinea pigs? The other frustrating thing is needed an Apple special card just to be able to charge it up. Why isn't it as simple as petrol? Quite simply, money. There is money to be made, but it massively complicates the process. Charge us more, but make it easy and allow people to plug in their bit charge to pay for the charge. Why would that not work? Why do I need the apps and as many cars just to be able to use my vehicle? Are around 20 or 30 different charging networks which require you to have a card or an app to use. You can commit to one, but then that limits your options. You've always got to have an app these days. App for everything. Plus the card I received to tap and use on the Polar did not work once which meant I had to spend about 10 minutes on the phone to customer services to be able to charge up the vehicle. One of these charge points had no signal, which really left me stuck as I couldn't get through to the services. This made the 45 minute charge to 80% closer to an hour. Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you've been on the road for a few hours, it can be really frustrating. Secondly, not all the charge points actually work. I got to a fast charger with 29 miles of range and the point did not work, which meant I had to go to a slow charger for an hour to get 10 miles of range to be able to get to a fast charger to top it up. The three-hour, 45-minute trip actually took seven hours, which is less than ideal. If you mostly drive short distances and want to switch to an EV, then you absolutely should choose the Leaf. However, if you do travel long distances, you're going to end up frustrated with the infrastructure. One caveat that should be added is that the Electric Highway app is a great way to get charged on the go. After a nightmare journey on the way down to my destination, I signed up for the app, which allows you to scan a QR code and pay via your phone. It saves needing a card or remembering anything as it can just allow you to top up your range quickly. Verdict. Electric cars are constantly getting better and established car brands are now developing and producing them for release over the coming years. The infrastructure will also get better but there needs to be some standardization and charging to make the transition for drivers easier. Similarly, motorists needed to make sure that they are genuinely suitable for them. Running and owning an electric car is cheaper than a petrol or diesel vehicle and this is only expected to be better over time. However, the thing need to do is to work out if an electric car is really for you. They are expensive and still relatively in their infancy so you need to ensure that it is something that can facilitate what you need without creating many extra issues. Is another layer of the transport agenda which I talk about in episode 55. As I've said before in the end the agenda is that there will be no cars or private vehicles of any kind. High-speed underground rail travel or the subway as they say in America is planned to be the main means of travel it's all part of creating the society where only those who conform get access to anything, including travel. It's all about control. Eurozone in Italy. This is in the Express. Eurozone crisis. Italy's bulging debt is huge threat. Alarm bells are ringing. EU. In February, the European Commission slashed Eurozone growth forecasts, sparking fears over the bloc's biggest economies. The Commission warned growth will slow to 1.3% from 1.9% in 2018, and while this is expected to rebound to 1.6% in 2020, the new estimates are less optimistic than previous forecasts. In November 2018, Brussels said it expected Eurozone growth to hit 1.9% this year and 1.7% in 2020. 
but the biggest fears continue to be over Italy, which plunged into recession at the start of this year after its economy shrank further during the final three months of 2018. The Commission warned Italy is expected to be the slowest growing economy in the EU, with the expansion of just 0.2% this year. In a further blow, the Italian Treasury is expected to announce. The Italian Treasury expects the economy will expand to little over zero this year, according to Bloomberg, citing senior officials who referenced a draft report. The report added the Italian government is targeting a deficit of 23 or 2.4% of GDP from projected 2.04% previously forecast in its controversial budget. According to Trading Economics, Italy recorded debt equivalent to 132.10% of the country's GDP in 2018, having averaged 111.62% from 1988 until last year. Natalie Jansen, professor of finance at Neoma Business School in France, warned Italy is a much bigger threat to the Eurozone than Greece, which sunk into a huge crisis from 2010 and has since been loaned £375 billion, pounds, 320 billion euros, by European authorities and private investors, she told Express.co.uk. Contrary to what was expected, the euro was not significantly contributed to the economic convergence of the euro member countries. Italy is still the weak link and puts the stability of the euro at threat, a much bigger threat than Greece. Now, the point to make here about the euro, the euro was never meant to work. All the euro is, is just a stepping stone to what I'm going to explain when I finish reading the article. But the euro single-handedly encompassed much of, but the euro systematically enveloped almost all the currencies in Europe into one currency. And the idea is to go to another level with that, which I'll explain in a minute. Justin McQueen, market analyst at Daily Effects, warned the EU will be becoming increasingly concerned by Italy's worsening economic situation. He told Express.co.uk, the problem child of the Eurozone is Italy, with much of the focus on the country's expanding debt to GDP. With Italy currently in a recession, the country looks set to cut its GDP forecast for this year to 0.3 to 0.4% from the optimistic forecast of 1%. This, in effect, can see the deficit to GDP target rise to 2.3% from 2.04%, which in turn could ring the alarm bells for the EU over Italy's excessive debt problem. Germany narrowly escaped tumbling into recession earlier this year when GDP growth stalled at 0%, but concerns for the EU's biggest economy have remained, particularly after the country saw its growth forecast slashed by the country's economic institutes in a damning new report. This has been downgraded to 0.8% from a previous estimate of 1.9%, with a report warning a hard Brexit would blow a huge hole in the economy. The reason we're given reasons to fear a hard Brexit is because the political class don't want a hard Brexit. And the financial class, the financial elite, don't want a hard Brexit. And we're given all these scare stories of why we should fear a hard Brexit, which is the only Brexit worth having, in my view, as I said before. Because any other Brexit entails keeping membership of the European Union unofficially in one or more areas of society, whether it's trade or finance or law, whatever. And the consequences of retaining aspects of the European Union membership are far worse than a hard Brexit, especially for a country like Britain, where 
Britain has a massive trade deficit with the European Union, where Europe buys more from us than we sell. Article goes on. Germany also led a decline in manufacturing across the Eurozone last month, with factories in the area recording their worst month for almost six years. The PMI for manufacturing, which accounts for about a fifth of the economy, fell to an 18-month low reading of 44.1. This is down from 47.6 in February and lower than the flash reading of 44.7. Tory MP Sir John Redwood, also Chief Global Strategist at investment firm Charles Stanley, told Express.co.uk the German economy, usually the strong leader of the Eurozone, has been badly hit throughout its manufacturing base. EU policies on vehicle emissions have damaged car demand whilst the falling car sales in the USA and China have also hurt. Today's figures of an 8.4% fall in manufacturing orders over the last year shows how serious it is. The increasing struggles in Italy and Germany have led many experts to fear the Eurozone has not been quick enough to respond to obvious warnings. So John added the Eurozone has been slow to respond to the change of mood in world markets late last year and to the warnings of slowdown and recession. They carried out their plan to end their money creation and bond buying program and they persevere with their tough budget disciplines on Euro member states. The European Union is, ironically, plan to dictate to regionalised countries within which there are planned to be smart cities, as I've described before. This is planned to be justified in one way by creating these smarter, energy-efficient cities to tackle human-caused climate change, which is why we're seeing such a focus on climate change now, and why we're constantly hearing about creating a smarter energy grid. I talk about the real reason for this smart grid in episodes 10 and 11, and I talk about the human-caused climate change scam in episodes 18 and 29. The agenda, not least through Agenda 21, out of the United, the agenda, not least through Agenda 21 and its offshoot 2030, out of the United Nations, justified by human-caused climate change, seeks deindustrialization in favor of the agenda, not least through Agenda 21, out of the United Nations, justified by human-caused climate change, seeks deindustrialization, the end of industry in favour of privatisation and corporatisation of everything. This is why the NHS is being run down in an effort to privatise it. Same with policing, the way that police forces are stretched and there's a massive emphasis on paperwork as opposed to using that time to actually police. Rail travel is designed to be privatised and corporatised. Obviously that's a lot further along than the other two. And this move to mega corporations, owned ultimately by the same few, tiny few elite, running everything is to ensure society most easily and even down to the fine detail reflects the elite's agenda, the agenda that I've detailed over the course of pay-per-view. And this structure allows for easy advancement of the elite's agenda. The elite's agenda seeks an end to independent individual economies in place of a one-world centralised banking system dictating all global finance. This will entail a one-world single electronic cashless currency, which is the next level after the euro. There's already a name for the American version of the euro, the Amero, and they want currency. And the plan is for currencies in different areas of the world, but eventually there will be evolved into a single cashless currency if those countries don't go there in one go, which is a possibility as well. Cashless currency obviously has significant implications for freedom because while cash remains in circulation, if you can't pay in a cashless society with electronic money, 
either through a credit card, mobile phone or a microchip as is planned, then you can't pay at all. The idea is that anyone challenging or publicly questioning and exposing authority will not be able to purchase with their electronic cashless currency. Total control. That's the idea. Now, talking about the economy and money, there is an agenda to trigger a crash of the global economy on a much bigger scale than in 2008. I mean, we're talking about a crash that will make the one in 2008 look like child's play. And this could be done in a few different ways. One is the derivatives market, which is claimed to be worth trillions, but in reality is backed by nothing. Just like money, credit in general is backed by nothing. And when this is revealed and the derivatives market lie collapses, so too does the entire global financial system. According to Investopedia, a financial money website, in and of itself, a derivative is worthless. Futures contracts, forwarder contracts, options, swaps, and warrants are commonly used derivatives. A futures contract, for example, is a derivative because its value is affected by the performance of the underlying asset. There's only one problem with this, though. There are no underlying assets worth anything. Money itself is figures on a screen converted into physical money, which is only worth what we're told it's worth. Money will be worth even less the more digital electronic money is used in society. Even much of the gold now is actually gold-covered tungsten, and the revelation of that fact is another way the global economy could be catastrophically affected. On purpose. The global stock market can be affected just by circulating rumours, even false rumours, that a stock or commodity like gold is going to go up or down in the stock market and, inv and investors will get in or pull out depending on the rumour. And if you know the truth, you can prepare for the up or down by either buying up stock on the cheap before the stock or commodity goes back up or pulling out when you know a stock or commodity will go down. Or an economy. People like George Soros manipulate in this way. Soros famously bet on the pound many years ago and made a fortune. Soros is an elite insider, which is why he promotes some funds to the tune of billions, various aspects of the elite's agenda. I'll talk about Soros in episodes 3, 21 and 46. I'll talk about money in more detail in episodes 5, 23 and 46. Soros makes a fortune as a financial speculator, betting on the economies of countries. And this is a guy who has said, I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of what I do. I'm only there to make money. And he also funds the progressive left, not the liberal left, although they claim to be liberal, the progressive left, which is far closer aligned to the right. And the progressive left, the politically correct mob, the climate change, human cause climate change hoax advocates on the left don't ask why someone with that mentality would fund the left. It's because he's funding aspects of the elite's agenda. That's why he does it. And that's why as an elite insider he knows when an economy is going to go up or down. So he knows when to bet on that economy and make a fortune from doing so. Because he doesn't see the downfall of an economy as, uh, what about the people of that country? How, how are they going to survive? What does it mean for them? He just sees an opportunity to make money. Physical money is an interest-bearing debt. It even says on the note in England, banknotes from the Bank of England, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 
and if that demand was ever made, there would be nothing to pay the bearer back with other than physical money which says the same thing. I talk in episode 5 about how the money system itself creates debt and is in effect making money from money. Countries get into debt and then borrow money from banks, which itself is a debt, and this ongoing cycle allows for control of individual countries. There is a solution to all this, and that is governments printing money interest-free and circulating it among the population, thereby eliminating banks from the equation entirely except to be a means only of storing money. This would create dramatically less debt for people, businesses, countries, and relevant to this story, continents. Of course, if that happened, then the control over the money system, the vast wealth of the elite that's generated for them through owning the global banking system, and the control over people and countries would be eliminated. That's why it's never happened. John F. Kennedy did propose and seemed intent on going further with a far more fair and balanced monetary system, as did Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln indeed introduced interest-free money, interest-free notes, during the American Civil War. You might remember Kennedy and Lincoln both have something else in common. People might ask why, if the elite own the global banking system, would they want a collapse of the global financial system? They know what's planned to happen. It's their agenda, and they've had many generations to prepare for it. The collapse of the global financial system is planned to be resolved, with resolved in inverted commas, with the global elite's long-planned, new, cashless, centralized global banking system. One of the reasons this is planned is not just individual control, but control of nations or regions, as they're planned to be, where if nations don't want to play ball with a planned world government, then they too will find themselves in financial and economic straits. It's all about control, because the entirety of the elite's agenda is about control. And detailing that agenda is what pay-per-view is all about. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.